we are, this is called Reformation Sunday, and it's actually the, on Tuesday, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And there are four big solas, kind of the big themes of the Reformation. And they are, number one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Bible alone is the authority for Christian faith and practice. The second sola is sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Number three is sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. Uh, Number four is solus Christus, Christ Jesus alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And finally is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for God's glory alone. Uh, I'm going to go get our special speaker. 500 years ago, Tuesday, I tacked up my 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that launched what became known as the Reformation. But I got to tell you, I wasn't trying to start a Reformation. I wasn't really trying to do anything all that extraordinary. I know that today, the image of me, you know, pounding the 95 theses on the church door seems revolutionary, but in my day, it was not uh, revolutionary at all. It wasn't extraordinary at all. It's, it's what we academics did when we wanted to call a debate, and that's all I was doing. I was calling for a debate regarding the selling of indulgences, and so uh, the church door is kind of like the bulletin board for us academics. If we wanted to call a debate, well, we just sort of tacked up our theses, our here's my argument, and uh, other academics would see it, then they would begin to uh, craft their response, their opposing arguments, and we would have a debate. So this was not novel, it wasn't considered revolutionary. In fact, a month earlier, I had posted 97 theses on the question of Uh, scholasticism, and uh, it didn't create any reformation. But this one did, uh, for reasons I want to talk about today. But before we get there, a little bit about myself. I was born on November 10th, 1483. Actually, my mom says she's not sure if it was 1482, 83, or 84. Apparently, uh, she felt like having me took a very long time. But I kind of split the difference. I'm like, 1483. We do know it was uh, November 10th, though, because uh, the next day, St. Martin's Day, is when I was baptized, and that's how I got my name, Martin Luther. My dad's name is Hans, and I had a good relationship with my parents. We were uh, upper middle class. My dad leased a number of copper mines. He was involved in the smelting business. And so I had a, a good upbringing. Uh, as a, as a, just a child, I showed that uh, promise, educational promise. And so my dad said, Martin, you're going to be a lawyer. At 17, they sent me off to the University of Erfurt, Germany, and I studied law. And I was good at it. I wasn't passionate about it, but I, I'm sort of a, a student by nature. And so I did well. But when I was 22, I was on my way home from university, I'm riding my horse, I was outside the village of Stoddernham, when a storm, I mean a violent storm, broke loose. I was out in one of the fields, and there was 
thunder and lightning. And one of the lightning bolts hit right next to my horse, and my horse just reared back, tossed me off. I feared for my life, and I cried out, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. I didn't die. So, two months later, I entered the Augustinian Monastery of Erfurt, Germany. I didn't tell my dad, because I knew my dad was not going to be happy about this. And he wasn't. He was outraged when he found out, in his mind, he had just wasted a whole bunch of money training me to be a lawyer, and now I was going to go waste it as a monk. But I had made a vow, and I needed to fulfill that vow. Now, I have to admit, though, that the idea to become a monk didn't just come out of the blue like that. I had been thinking about this. I had been considering this. I was a very uh, spiritually sensitive young man, and I was concerned for my soul. Uh, I was not sure that I was right with God. I wasn't sure that I was saved, and it bothered me. And I had been thinking about becoming a monk because I figured, what better way to ensure my salvation than to devote myself to uh, the things of God? And so the, the storm was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. It's pushed me over the cliff, right? And so I went, uh, joined the monastery. I was a very sincere, uh, fervent, intense monk. I figured if, if I just work harder than all the other monks, then of course I've got to, you know, be right in God's eyes. Just an example of how intense I was, uh, we monks were required to confess our sins every day. We had to go to the confessional. And so most of my brother monks, they spent five, ten minutes in the confessional uh, rehearsing the sins of the previous 24 hours. I spent, on average, two hours a day in the confessional. One time I spent six hours confessing the sins of the previous 24 hours. And my confessor, uh, Johann von Staupitz, he was a very patient man, but finally he said, Brother Martin, spare me the picadillos. Please, you come back with something significant. But to me, these were all significant. I wasn't just concerned about uh, my, the sins of, kind of, uh, of my action, my big sins. I was concerned about my heart. And I was asking questions such as, am I really giving God you know, primary place in my affections? What are my motivations? Do I love him enough? Right? And this, this really, uh, these were not picadillos to me. This was serious stuff. As an um, academic type, I threw myself into the study of the Scriptures. I learned uh, Greek and Hebrew along with Latin. And I wanted to uh, unlock the key. What's the, you know, study the Scriptures. How do I, how can I be sure that I'm right with God? Well, the more I studied the Scriptures, the more I recognized just how holy God is and how unholy I am. And in German, we have a word called anfektugen. And I was filled with Anfektugen. And it has a number of ideas in English. It's uh, despair, anger, frustration, uh, depression, fear. I was filled with Anfektugen because as I considered the holiness of God and my, un, my own unrighteousness and the gap, it stressed me out. There was in my day uh, an attitude uh, saying, just do your best. That's all God requires of you, do your best. 
But that didn't help me at all because I didn't know, am I doing my best? I, I don't, how do I know that? One time, uh, von Staupitz said, Brother Martin, you, you think God hates you, but you know what? I think you hate God. And he was right. I hated God as I considered the demands that he placed on me and, and then how incapable, despite how sincere I was and intentional I was, how incapable I was to living up to it. Uh, I thought God must be sadistic. And I actually hated him in my heart. And of course, that just made things worse, right? As an Augustinian, we were often asked to preach in the local churches. And so I would study the scriptures to prepare sermons. And there was one particular verse that just hounded me. I hated this verse. It distressed me to no end. But it became the verse that God used to give me spiritual breakthrough. And it was Romans 1.17. And that verse, in that verse, it says that the righteousness of God has been revealed and the righteous will live by faith. Now, what, what distressed me is that my original interpretation of that verse was that the righteousness that had been revealed was the moral law of God. Like, he had revealed the high bar, the ethical high bar that he expected all of us to get over in order to get into heaven, in order to be right with him. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Yes, we read the scriptures and we know what God requires of us. And it's way, way, way up there. The more I studied the scriptures, the, more, the higher that bar was. And the righteous will live by faith. Well, in my understanding, that was we're going to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we're going to work to get up and over that high bar. Also in my day, there was uh, the teaching that when you got baptized, which for many of us was as infants, right? When you got baptized, God infused you with his grace, which, which was his uh, capacity to do right. But then you needed to uh, kind of live out, live that out and get up over that high bar. You, we, we reached up to God through our own good works. The more I studied the scriptures, though, the more I saw that that high bar was way outside of my reach. And of course, that just distressed me to no end and made me hate God. One day I was wrestling with that verse. I was in a tower in the Black Cloister Monastery in Wittenberg. And I'm wrestling with it, and it's, it's stressing me out. And then God, by His grace, helped me see uh, that verse differently. He helped me see the truth in it. Because it says, by the gospel, the righteousness of... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And by it, the righteous will live by faith. And all of a sudden, I realized, wait a second. The righteousness of God is not the moral standard God holds us to. It's the righteousness that Jesus Christ possesses because he lived a perfect life on earth. And God offers us Christ's righteousness by faith. What? Christ's righteousness is available to me if I will just receive it as a gift? And then I can live out of that righteousness, not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. This was the golden key that unlocked spiritual life to me. It was as if I had been reborn. I had the big, hallelujah, this is unbelievable. 
And it became one of the uh, one of the solas of the Reformation: salvation by grace through faith alone. Salvation comes by grace, not by our own merit, but by the gift of God in Christ, and we receive it by faith. This freed me spiritually. This was the big uh, reformation for in my own heart and life. Well, I had come to that great. Uh, recognition, that great uh, release by 1517 when I tacked up the 95 Theses. But that's not what the 95 Theses were about. I'm, in those Theses, I wasn't talking about salvation by grace through faith alone. Nothing to do with that. I was talking about indulgences and the selling of indulgences and challenging whether that was, in fact, a wise practice. There was a guy, let, just let me tell you a little bit about indulgence. There was a guy going through Europe at the time by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel, he had this line uh, that he would use. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory flings. Catholics uh, believe that purgatory is a place that Christians go after they die, before they go to heaven. It's not hell, but it's kind of like hell light. You don't want to go to purgatory. But you go to purgatory in order to finish the transformational process into Christ-likeness. The only people who actually, in this life, completely finish the transformational process are saints, and there aren't that many of them, right? Most of us, so say the Catholics, go to purgatory where we kind of make up the the rest of the process, and you could be stuck there for hundreds of years. Well, um, Tetzel was going around saying, hey, if you'll buy an indulgence from the church, then your time in purgatory will greatly reduce, and you can buy one on behalf of your loved ones, and, and, and they can also get out of purgatory a lot faster. When a, uh, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Tetzel's, what he was doing is going around preaching, a, he would start by preaching a sermon about the terrors of purgatory, how terrible it is, and how you don't want to be there for very long at all. And then he would say, guess what? You can buy an indulgence today right here and uh, get out. I was concerned that this was confusing people uh, with regard to how sins are in fact forgiven. And so that's why I tacked the theses up. I wanted to debate. I wanted to debate other uh, academics, other Catholic theologians. I wrote the theses in Latin, not in German. I wasn't trying to rile up the common man. They couldn't even read them. It it was only other academics. But within a couple months of uh, the theses being posted, some of my friends translated it into German and other languages, and then uh, it started spreading it around. Within two months, it was all over Europe these 95 Theses. And I, there were a lot of sympathizers, uh, people who, you know, in fact, Frederick III, the Prince of Saxony and wh- where I lived, he'd actually banned uh, Johann Tetzel from uh, even uh, selling indulgences in his area. So, the, so my writings, my theses, found a lot of sympathizers. Now, the, uh, by the way, I cannot stress enough the um, importance of the printing press to the Reformation. I don't know how the Reformation would have uh, gone like it did apart from the printing press. If you remember, uh, not that long earlier, in 1440, uh, a man by the name of Gutenberg developed the printing press. Prior to that, only rich people had the Bible and could afford the Bible. And, uh, you know, somebody would have had to hand 
hand copy my theses. Instead, they were able to mass print them and get it out for cheap into the hands of the populace. Well, there were a couple of very powerful people who had a vested interest in the selling of indulgences, namely the Pope, uh, Clement VII, and the Archbishop of Mainz. They were splitting the revenue uh, from the sale of indulgences. The Pope was using it to build a new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and the Archbishop of Mainz, he was using it to pay off the big loan he had taken out in order to buy his archbishopric, practice of simony. I'm against that, by the way. And uh, so these guys, when they became concerned about my writings because it was dampening people's enthusiasm to buy indulgences, thus cutting off their uh, revenue string. And so what did they do? They commissioned some heavy-hitting Catholic divines to uh, pen uh, rebuttals and oppose me and print their own pamphlets and get them out. Well, that just riled me up, right? So I had to, you know, now I'm being attacked, so I had to defend. And it's this back and forth where I'm uh, they're printing oppositional pamphlets, and I'm responding. And, and in that process, the back-and-forth process, I began to articulate these core themes that became uh, the basis of the Reformation, right? Uh, the sola fide, sola gratia, and uh, sola biblia. The Bible alone is the, uh, is the authority for Christian life and practice. 1519. A um, guy by the name of Johann Eck. He was a big Catholic divine, and he challenged me to a, a debate. It became known as the Leipzig uh, Disputation because it took place in Leipzig, Germany. And the, what, what, here's the big takeaway from the Leipzig di- Disputation. I constantly appealed to the Bible and only the Bible. And I would just keep saying, Master Eck, show me that in the Bible. Master Eck, what is it? Show me where that is in the Bible. And he kept appealing. Yes, he talked about the Bible, but he also appealed to the writings of the Pope and the church councils, what we call the church magisterium. And I would refuse to grant that uh, the, uh, the level of authority in the debate that I was granting the Bible. And at one time, I so irritated him, they just said, Brother Martin, are, do you believe the Pope can be wrong when he speaks ex cathedra, when he's talking theology? And I said, yes. He can, and he has been. And that pretty much was the end of the debate, because at that point, uh, Master X said, well, then you're just a modern-day Jan Hus, the Czech uh, reformer they burned at the stake uh, in 1415 because of this exact issue of where is authority. (sighs) A little bit later that year, the first papal bull came, showed up in Wittenberg, where I lived. I was uh, uh, teaching at the University of Wittenberg. And, and I was, said, I was uh, commanded by the Pope, you answer these questions upon pain of being excommunicated. It was called, the, the papal bull was called, Rise Up, O Lord. And the opening line was, Rise Up, O Lord, a wild boar is loose in your garden. So the Pope called me a wild boar. I kind of like that. That could be my nickname. So, uh, and I was, you know what I did, though? I just took this papal bull and I burned it in the town square. That was 1519. 1520, the next papal bull arrived, and I had been declared a heretic and excommunicated from the church. And that's a big deal. In my day, that was a a life-threatening deal. 1521, 
the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V demanded that I come to the Diet of Worms, uh, named after it, it was held in Worms, Germany. Uh, and so I showed up. I had to. But I was not given an opportunity to uh, defend myself. I wasn't given an opportunity to explain my beliefs. I was simply shown a pile of my writings and asked, Brother Martin, did you write this? Yes, I did. Brother Martin, will you recant? And I knew what was at stake. I'd already been declared a heretic. In my day, they killed heretics. If this was my opportunity to recant, if I failed to recant, the Pope would then ask the emperor to carry out the punishment of heretics. I would be executed. And so I, faced with the enormity of that possibility, I said, would you give me 24 hours to prayerfully consider? And they did. And so I talked to some of my friends. I read scripture. I prayed. And the next day I stood before these uh, 300 princes of the empire the most powerful men in Europe other than France and England. They, they weren't part of the empire at the time. And I said, listen, unless you can show me, either from Scripture itself or from eminent reason, that, that I'm misinterpreting the Bible, I can't go against the Bible or my conscience. I mean, that's dangerous. And so here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Well, in their minds, that just confirmed what they already believed, that I was a heretic. Fortunately, I had been granted, promised, uh, safe passage to and from the Diet. And so the emperor had to wait until I got back to Wittenberg before he could arrest me and kill me. Uh, Frederick III, we called him the Wise, the Prince of Saxony, one of these 300 eminent men, he was sympathetic to my cause, and he didn't want me killed. And so he told some of his soldiers, I want you to intercept Brother Martin on his way back to Wittenberg, and then you squire him away. You take him somewhere and hide him. And don't tell me. I don't want to know, because i got to maintain plausible deniability before the emperor. And in fact, the emperor did multiple times. Frederick, where's Brother Martin? And he would say, I don't know, I, but I was in one of his castles, <laughs> the castle of Wartburg. And down in a cell, I was, they were nice to me, but I was locked away. And uh, Frederick said, let's just let this storm bro, bl blow over. So I was there for many months. But I made good use of my time there. I translated the New Testament into German. Because here's what I knew. I knew that if we can get the Bible into the hands, the hearts, and the tongue of the German people the Reformation will, will go on. It will outlive me. Even if they kill me, the Reformation will go because these are biblical ideas. They're not novel ideas. They didn't come from me. They're from the Bible. And, and, and I knew that if the, if the average person, the average Christian person and dwelt with the Spirit of God had access to the Word of God, they too would see what the Bible says. And although there had been other translations of the New Testament into German, what made my translation different is um, I, I worked really hard to, uh, to uh, speak in the common language. And so I would 
take the idea and I'd say, okay, what is God saying here? All right, and then I would uh, write it in, in the way you would hear it in just uh, in, the, in any village, uh, the way a, German, a, a normal German common person uh, would speak. We call it the vernacular. And the printing press churned these out and they, they sold like hotcakes. And when God's people uh, had God's word in their hand and in their tongue, it began into, got into their heart, and the Reformation was unstoppable. So don't take for granted the fact that you have God's word. Every one of you, read the word of God. It's the power of God. It'll set you free. Don't be beholden upon it. Don't anyone else. Don't hand uh, that your mind over to someone else and depend upon them. Be like the Bereans, who were, uh, who were applauded because they, they um, confirmed even the word of the apostles by whether or not it matched the word of God. I want to end by just asking, is there anyone here whose heart is filled with unfectugan? You are trying to reach up to God in your own strength and you're, and you're failing, and as a result, you don't have assurance of salvation. You're not confident that you're right with God. You don't know how he feels about you, and this bothers you. I want to declare to you today the truth that I've been declaring for 500 years, and that is the gospel is the righteousness of Christ is available to us to be received like a gift through faith. And then we, we live out of it. The righteous shall live by faith. We live not out of a, 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 a stance of I'm good enough and I'm worthy, but Christ is worthy. And his worthiness never changes. And when God looks at me, he sees Christ and his righteousness. Praise God for that, right? Well, let me pray for us and then uh, thank you. I'll see you again in the presence of Christ our Lord for eternity.